This talk was given by Shyla Catherine. For more information and a schedule of her events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. So tonight I'd like to discuss the fifth precept, the practice of refraining from indulging in the use of intoxicants. And this is a rather interesting precept, I think. A lot of joy and self-respect can come from an explicit commitment to abstain from intoxication and to refrain from using any intoxicants that dull or distort the mind. The language of this precept refers to various kinds of fermented drinks that were available at the time of the Buddha. And we may not even know exactly what those flowers or fruits or, or, um, or roots were, but there's a clear sense that this was a lot about, you know, make, uh, refraining from the use of, from making one's own, um, alcohol, basically, and, um, and consuming it. So it refers to those grains and plants uh, where one would uh, ferment them to make intoxicating drinks. We usually find this precept described as to abstain from liquor, wine, and intoxicants, the basis for heedlessness. And I think this fifth precept functions a bit differently than the previous four precepts that we've already discussed. Those first four precepts were to refrain from killing, stealing, lying, and sexual misconduct, which are really rather coarse actions that hurt people in the world in very obvious ways. And there are a number of discourses Uh, of the Buddha, where we find the first four, but not the fifth listed. But intoxication is is also an unwholesome action, and it has an effect. Intoxication often reduces our inhibitions and therefore makes it easier to break any of the first four precepts. Even mild intoxication can harm our our spiritual progress, can affect the quality of our mind and the ability to um, maintain a right intention. When we're intoxicated, the threshold of our restraint is weakened. How many times have you known people to engage in sexual misconduct when they were drunk? Or how often is theft connected with drug use? It's so common that addicts will lie. And those are simple examples of times when the intoxication is linked to the breaking of the previous precepts. Intoxicating the mind prevents us from feeling the effects of having breached those other precepts and therefore makes it more likely that we will break them again in the future. Some well-respected Buddhist practitioners and teachers have a much looser attitude towards this precept than the other four. 
But I think the fifth precept is still quite important, especially for people who take their meditation practice quite seriously and really want to dedicate themselves to the development of mindfulness, concentration, and clarity. I interpret the precept to include refraining from the use of alcohol and recre- and or the recreational use or abuse of drugs such as marijuana, narcotics, cocaine, LSD, mushrooms, etc. Now, I will include in this category mind-altering hallucinogenic drugs, even if they're plant-based or organically grown, and also when they're used with a spiritual intention or even in a shamanic context. And it doesn't matter to my mind whether they are designated as illegal by the government or not. If they intoxicate the mind, they still would breach this precept. So I would definitely also include tobacco and nicotine in this category because the craving for nicotine and the addictive response has a strong effect on the mind. It affects the moods, the mental stability. It affects our mental agility. It affects the mind mind's sense of balance in that continuum from calmness to agitation or from relax to irritability in our emotional experiences. Nicotine can create dependency that binds one to the substance, thereby producing even more unwholesome states such as anxiety, fear, restlessness, selfish craving, and desire when the smoker decides to quit or is separated from the cigarettes. Intoxication in one form or another prevents us from being present with the experience of life and may dull our genuine experience or heighten our attachment to fragile, agitating, pleasurable experiences. In this world, many substances are available, both legally and illegally. Though they're available, they still can have a negative effect on the quality of the mind. Some substances promise quicker and more vivid spiritual experiences than you can get with all that slow, hard work you have to do with meditation. And some substances induce a kind of calmness and relaxation. Others boost energy. Some produce loving social um, social feelings and, and a kind of a broad experience of love towards all. And some produce kind of mind-blowing altered states. But I don't believe any of them lead to the wisdom that ends greed, hate, and delusion, which is the genuine fruit of a spiritual life and a meditation practice. Now, medicines are needed, and they're valuable treatments for medical conditions. And some psychiatric conditions, of course, will require medication, and medicines can be used wisely to maintain functional mental balance. But for most people, it would be unwise to reach for substances to adjust our mental un- our mental balance towards certain preferences or towards uh, for um, heightened experiences. The addictive, heedless, or careless use of drinking drugs or smoking these break this precept and are our unwholesome actions. When one reaches for a smoke or a drink, craving and ignorance 
are evident. Aversion to pain, for example, might cause someone to want to numb one's feelings, or self-hatred might propel the self-destructive and unhealthy acts. So dosa, that hate-rooted consciousness, can be a supporting condition for the use of intoxicants. But most of the time, it's probably simply desire, loba. That um, the poly term is loba for that sensual desire um, and greed of the mind. Um, that's probably more uh, active in, um, in in craving and intoxicating experiences than hate. Consider what causes you. What is the motivation that might encourage you to reach for a substance? Say to, in the instance of smoking a cigarette. We're all educated, intelligent people who know and understand that smoking leads to an array of health problems and pollutes the air and can harm people and animals in the area and is also a daily financial expense that and burden that we may not um, uh, easily um, want to undertake. So we have to consider Why would an intelligent, (laughs) educated person reach for the cigarettes? Something else is going on, that craving of mind. What mental state would need to be present to pull out a cigarette and to take a puff? So that craving is the obvious one. Uh, The the self-oriented desires and the absence of clear comprehension and restraint. It's pretty much the opposite of what we develop in a meditative practice. The second noble truth states that craving is the cause for suffering and must be abandoned. But it's much easier to say that, to know that intellectually, than to actually do that. Many addicts find it very difficult to overcome the craving that keeps them caught in the vicious cycle of addiction. And we need many supports, outer supports and inner supports, practices and social supports to change our addictive patterns. When we met at St. Timothy's in Mountain View, I always enjoyed having the AA group next door as a kind of reminder that here was a community that was sharing together, sharing in community, sharing through conversation, sharing through dialogue and story, their struggles to overcome the cause of suffering, craving. And right next door, there we were, sitting in silence, sharing the silence together, developing the calmness, the stability, and the mental clarity, doing our form of work to also overcome the causes of suffering in craving. Two different modes of approach, but, a, a, but, but focusing on a very similar problem. I take a rather strong stand in regard to this fifth precept, even though I know that there are dedicated practitioners who smoke or who drink, and Dharma teachers who also do, and perhaps even periodically use hallucinogenic drugs. But I feel these actions are not innocuous, that smoking 
and drinking and using intoxicating drugs sabotages the meditative effort and has the danger of destabilizing the mind. Even infrequent drug use can prevent a kind of clarity and stabilization of the mind, which would, would, I believe, otherwise develop through the gradual progression of mindfulness, concentration, and insight practices. There are some substances, of course, that dramatically destabilize consciousness, and others that aggravate aggression, fear, or craving. Some can produce delusions and um, dependency, but all seemed to weaken the basic qualities that a meditative practice endeavors to cultivate. Mindfulness, focused attention, equanimity, and restraint. Essential to meditation is learning to renounce our attachments. Essential to liberation is letting go of craving. This is the second noble truth that the Buddha taught. Understand the cause of suffering is craving. Abandon that cause. Let it cease. To develop our minds through meditation, we need to be able to be steady, steadily attentive, mindful, perhaps to the pain as well as the pleasurable experiences, to meet both with mindfulness and equanimity without reaching for something to dull the pain or reaching for something to enhance the pleasure. We have to be willing to know dukkha, to know the unsatisfactoriness of conditioned experience and bear the pain we experience in life. It might be physical pain. It might be emotional trauma. It may be the pain of seeing greed and anger festering within our own minds or our communities. It might be the anxiety that arises when we can't bear our own emotional turmoil or the painful recognition that this life will inevitably end with death. When we're mindful, we won't be avoiding or distorting our perception of what is actually occurring here and now. A mindful mind will sit with the truth of this moment, will be willing to be present for pain and present for happiness, awake to the whole gamut of life's experiences without withdrawing from the painful or trying to uh, fuel more pleasant experiences. We need to be able to work with the mind rather than engage in self-intoxicating or self-destructive patterns. In a way, we might need to see how vulnerable, how perhaps pathetic this mind really is and learned to strengthen it wisely. It's vital to develop the ability to abandon craving. We might want to say, just say no, <laughs> but maybe that strategy doesn't recognize how incredibly difficult that is. How the rewards, the temporary rewards of sensual pleasure tend to overcome our capacity for restraint. Even when craving arises again and again, 
we cultivate the, the ability to still practice restraint, to stay true to our vow, to say no to intoxication, and to find the supports that we need internally and externally to maintain our commitment to these precepts, our commitment to clarity, to balance, and to restraint. This fifth precept can be very difficult to maintain strictly. And it's not unusual to hear people try to soften it, to make exceptions for it, justifications around it, thinking, oh, it's okay to drink alcohol so long as I don't get drunk. It's fine to drink this or that once in a while, so long as it doesn't lead to, you know, totally flagrant intoxication and and drunken disorderliness. Well, look closely, bring mindfulness to the experience that you feel, that you sense, the quality of your mind, how you perceive things, how you know things in the in the act of drinking and in the period of time after it and in your meditation the next day. What effect does alcohol have on your energy, on your impulse control, on your capacity to make wise and careful decisions, on your right speech, on your acts of empathy and compassion, the me- and the mental clarity? Does alcohol help you concentrate and be more mindful? Notice how a glass of beer or wine affects your sitting meditation in the next day and the day after. What is your motivation then for drinking? Some people will say, ah, but it helps me relax. Well, and relaxation is good. And it sounds innocuous enough. But if you always reach for substances to relax, whether that's a beer or a cocktail, a joint or whatever, please ask yourself why you need that chemical input to relax. And don't simply relax. What is the source of the tension that you're relaxing away from? Maybe something in your life needs mindful attention, understanding, investigation. And you might then be able to find a wiser response to the sources of tension rather than intoxication. Maybe there's a more effective way to relax. Through meditation, we discover that deep relaxation comes through letting go, through release. Continuing our cravings, perpetuating attachments. This is not the way to a genuine experience of deep relaxation. To work with this precept, we need to get away from the thought that intoxication is something that only out-of-control drunks or drug addicts have to fend with, have to deal with. We look deeper at the source and the force of craving and see its effects on our actions and our decisions. To what extent do we distort or dull our own minds rather than do the inner meditative work that will help clarify how this mind functions? What is the nature 
of mind. I've worked with many students on retreats, and I'm convinced that alcohol and drug use reduce the stability of consciousness and the capacity for mental agility, mental flexibility that is really needed to develop refined practices like meditative absorption, concentration, and jhana practice. The mind is a precious thing, and we understand so very little of it. It seems to me rather unwise to distort it with chemicals and intoxicating substances rather than to support it with healthy activities. Meditation practice gives us a way to explore and understand the nature of mind and root out the forces that keep perpetuating the habits of craving and the conditions for suffering. And this is not an easy path. It is not always easy to see the dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness of conditioned experience. But this is what we face in a Buddhist practice. This is what actually we become liberated through, is the clear and direct knowledge of things as they are. Sometimes we look at our own minds and we are not so proud of what we see. Sometimes we'll have pain, sometimes we'll have pleasure, sometimes we'll be present for it, and sometimes we'll be totally lost and out of control, caught by craving and addiction. But restraint, understanding, patience, compassion, and equanimity will gradually develop on this liberating path. Let's not let substance abuse, not in Gross or subtle ways sabotage our potential to find real peace. I'm confident that you'll notice the difference in the quality of your meditations if you take this precept to heart and strictly refrain from the use of drinking, smoking, or drugs that intoxicate the mind. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.